How can we retell the story of America? In the United States of Amnesia, why does the Western celebrate cowboys, but not all people who built this country? What does a Chinese-American hero look like in the 21st century? Tom Lin is an American writer whose 2021 debut novel, The Thousand Crimes of Ming Tzu, chronicles the story of a Chinese-American outlaw seeking revenge during America's railroad boom. It won the 2022 Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction, making Lin the youngest Carnegie winner in the prize's history. Tom Lin is currently pursuing an English doctorate at the University of California, Davis. Tom Lin, welcome to The Creative Process. Hi, Mia. Thanks for having me. So we've been enjoying The Thousand Crimes of Ming Su, which is an unusual take on the Western. Before we get into discussing your novel, you're going to share a passage with us. Yeah, absolutely. So this passage is from towards the end of the book, but there's no spoilers, I promise. And Ming Su, the main character, is crossing the Sierra Nevada mountains and he sees a shape. At altitude, time passes differently. Darkness before sunset, the land not going to morning until long after the sky has bleached blue and bone white. The days lose their order. The mountains know their own way. He who traverses these slopes passes through a realm not entirely his own. In the rarefied air, his breath comes quick and shallow, and he pants as he climbs. And all around him, the world pulls down, down, and down again. Endless goings down, avalanche and rock slide, and filthy lahars kicked off by thunderstorms that carry whole forests down into the valley in their boiling weight. He sees this going down everywhere he looks. He feels the stones sliding beneath his feet. In the rivers and in the rocks, invisible undertows drag all things, ultimately, out to sea. He was descending the slope of the mountain when he noticed a strange boulder covered in snow some hundred yards down from the rails. When he reached it, he saw that it was a man, clearly dead, though for how long Ming couldn't tell. The body was frozen solid, the man's skin bleached the ghastly white by sun and ice. Whatever snow cover had sheltered the body from thaw must have only recently receded. A wind sidled along the snowdrifts as Ming regarded the shape. Even in the absence of color in the dead man's face, Ming could see that he was Chinese. Rags clung to his body in tatters. Scavengers had plucked out his eyes and tongue. His throat had been bloodied ages ago by some carrion eater, and the blood had frozen before it could dry, as a violent smear of red ice welded to alabaster skin. He stared up with sightless sockets at the infinite blue of the Sierra sky. Ming guessed the man was no more than twenty. He brushed a thin covering of snow from a nearby stone and sat down, gazing at the dead man. The world was quiet but for the sound of the wind combing through the trees. The dead Chinese glittered in the sunlight. Ming couldn't decide whether to bury him. It is through labor that men remember anything at all, he imagined the prophet telling him. But he had no spade with which to dig a grave, and the ground here was already too frost-hardened to yield to the blade of a shovel anyway. Ming stood from the rock he'd been sitting on and started off along his route again, cutting across the slope to the railroad. But he only made it a dozen paces before he stopped, troubled by something he couldn't quite name. The body of the dead Chinese swayed gently on the point of the man's spine, moving with the wind. He turned and went back to the dead man. I'm sorry, he said, and he was startled by the sound of his own voice. He had been too long in silence. He cleared his throat and tried again. I'm sorry, he repeated. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. He glanced around, trying not to look directly at his face. I got nothing to bury you with, he said. The Chinese rocked a little and was still. The wind had died down. Ming took the body by one icy ankle and dragged it away toward the shade of the nearby pines. The skin of the dead man's ankle began to thaw in his grip, and Ming felt it soften enough to slide over the bones of those ankles, and he nearly let go. He shook his head as if to steady his thoughts and pulled the man into a clearing shaded by pines, and shuddering, he released the ankle. The dead man's frozen spine had carved a shallow rut in the snow as he'd been dragged, and still he hugged the remembered boulder, arms and legs locked in a death embrace. With a wary hand, he tipped him over onto his side. The fingers left divots in the thin, early-season snow, 
sunlight filtered down through the cathedral of pines. Min gathered some fallen branches whose needles had gone yellow and brittle and laid them on top of the man. There were not enough to cover the body, and through the gaps in the branches came flashes of pearl white and crimson, skin and blood. He unclasped his pack and set it down and went back to where he'd first found the man, sprawled atop that fallen boulder, and from the rubble that had come down from the blast, he began to collect stones. When his arms were full, he returned to the body and heaped the rocks on the dead Jennies. It was not enough. Still, the man's ghoulish face gazed through the trees. Ming needed more stones. It took him six trips, each time returning laden with stones, before he had enough to cover him. He kicked his boots into the trunk of a pine to work blood back into his feet, and he shoved his hands into his pockets to warm, clenching and unclenching them. When he had regained feeling enough, he drew his hands from his pockets and sat down cross-legged by the body obscured with fallen branches and with stones. The man's arms and legs were locked in their sockets, and try as he might, he could not move them, could not force the Chinese's frozen legs to lie down straight or cross his thin wrists over his sunken chest. The body might as well have been carved from stone. Ming placed a branch over the man's hollow eye sockets and used the remaining ones to fill the empty space between the limbs that the boulder had once occupied. Now he began to build a great cairn, stone locked against stone, a heap of fractured granite and black shale and waxy chips of green-gray shirt. By the time he was finished, the sky was beginning to darken, the temperature dropping with each passing moment, and he gazed upon the cairn in the deepening evening. He opened his mouth to say something, hail and farewell, perhaps, but could find no words. He wondered if the dead Chinese beneath the stones would have been able to understand him in life. He wondered if he had family across the sea, waiting for word of his successes. And he wondered now if the dead Chinese would have thanked him for dragging his body into this forest, for heaping him with stones, for standing now mute and pale over his frozen body, at last bearing witness to his death. To die nameless and unremembered and unmourned, on a frozen embankment in a land far from home. What was it the old man had said? Ming stretched his frozen hands over the stones in the failing light, breathing vapor into the chill night air. Return, he murmured. Yes, so this novel is one of many things, a return of love, of revenge. And I remember reading this passage, it seemed also like a metaphor of the self. Like when we come in exile to different countries, we rush to reinvent ourselves, but we lose something along the way. Something in us dies. Absolutely. I think that's a really precise and insightful interpretation. It's one of my favorite scenes, and I always like reading it. And I remember having to find a place for it in the book as I was putting it together and ultimately decided on putting it back there. Yes. And I think it made me also reflect on our success in whatever countries we have adopted. I've been adopted by a few countries by now. And our success is built in some way on the bones of our ancestors and the struggles that they often cover in silence. And, you know, success is about not remembering. I'm sure you must have gotten this from your parents a little bit too. Don't think about, just move forward and focus. Absolutely. I think so much of acceptance by foreign countries as immigrants, I think, lies with this ideal of assimilation. And assimilation, in one respect, it's negation of your own heritage and your own identity, because it requires this kind of knowing adoption of a different set of standards and cultural practices, which are alien to you. And in order to assimilate, you have to make them feel as though they are your own. And I think that as a society, we're trying to move past assimilation as an ideal for acceptance and moving into a more heterogeneous understanding of a culture that is able to absorb and tolerate different cultural practices and still preserve a common sense of identity that doesn't require necessarily assimilation. Right. And I mean, Asian, not just Chinese Americans, but Asian Americans largely 
our success has been oftentimes determined by the degree to which we can make ourselves invisible. The price is almost like, don't notice us. <laughs> We're not yeah. yeah, yeah. That's my, my parents used to say, you know, you keep your head down and you just try to do better than anyone else and that'll be enough. And in The Thousand Crimes of Ming Zhu, it's set very close to the first wave of immigration by Chinese to America. And it's a genre we know very well, the Western, and you turn that on its head in terms of who is allowed to be the hero of the Western. Why did you choose to set it within that genre? And then you introduce these other elements, which perhaps you'll describe to us. Yeah. So it's set during 1869, which is the last year of the Transcontinental Railroad, which is usually what we point to when we say, you know, when does America become a bi-coastal country? When does America begin its kind of long industrialization towards military dominance in the 20th century? It all begins with this railroad, which we construct at enormous expense, and it links the West Coast and the East Coast together by rail. And the way that we managed to build it so quickly was because we used enormous numbers of Chinese laborers, at least on the West side. Between Salt Lake and Sacramento, we used thousands of Chinese laborers whose names are now forgotten merely because they haven't been archived. The process of history is a process of selection. And so what the archive has selected for preservation is not the stories of those Chinese laborers, but rather the stories of the industrialists and the businessmen who funded the venture and coordinated with Congress. And what's funny is you'll see history books about the building of the railroad. And what they're referring to by that word building is the organization of the industrial process. So again, those businessmen and the people who built the railroad in that sense, who funded the railroad, their legacies remain with us today. Leland Sanford had Stanford University. You know, there is the Crocker Art Museum in Sacramento. All of these men have preserved legacies that have lasted now for 150 years, whereas the labor that actually built the railroad has disappeared along with the rails into the land that they carved it through. Yeah, and this was certainly not part of my American history books. And that brings me to your research process, because even finding the record of that is difficult. So what were you surprised in your research process and how did that inspire some scenes from your book? Yeah, I think there's a two-parter response, which is that the first one is I grew up in New York City and I came out to California for undergrad. And when I got here, I was confronted with these landscapes that I had never seen in real life. I mean, I'd certainly seen them in movies, but it is a different experience altogether to be out in the desert in person and rather just than reading about it. And so I wanted to write something that could capture that feeling because that to me was magical and inspirational. And of course, the form for speaking about the American West as landscape is the Western. And it's historically and conventionally been a machine for imperialism and for extending this colonial project of the American nation over these indigenous lands. And so when you say so-and-so is turning it on its head, I think it's an acknowledgement of how powerful that machine for myth-making and nation-building can be, but it's also an acknowledgement that it can be directed towards other ends and that we can apply that same function of myth-making towards non-imperialist modes. And so the research for it was very simple and it was fun to do because research for me is so much more fun than writing. And so I did research to avoid writing. And what I would do is I would take these drives out into the desert and I would take notes. I went along the route of the Transcontinental Railroad, east to west, east a bunch of times. And I went to all these historical recovery projects that are being run. There's the, the project of Chinese in America and all these history books and synthesizing this sense of being in a place in time where I was not. And I think some of the things and some of the experiences that I felt while doing that research, I felt were necessary to preserve in the text because I think the text is always produced out of confluence with the body. And so in order to portray something in text, you have to pass it through the body and through the senses. And as a result, it was really important for me to go to these places and have that physical experience with the body in order that I would be able to put it down in the book and have it be true. 
Yes. And another character we should say, and I want to go into the fantastical elements and so many of these interesting characters that you have, is that landscape is definitely a character in the novel. I was wondering if you felt it to be in some ways an environmental novel in terms of the external landscape seemed to reflect the internal weather system of Ningsu, or we should say John. Yeah, I think the landscape has always loomed large in the Western genre and in Western fiction. And I think for multiple reasons, I think it originally comes up because it's trying to sell this ideal of the unconquered frontier. And so it's necessarily wild. It's necessarily uninhabited. And, you know, if it is inhabited, it's inhabited by rogue bands of indigenous people who are there to be dispelled from the land. And so the landscape and its kind of emptiness and the kind of the splendor of its emptiness is a real traditional touchstone for the Western because of that project that it's been associated with. But I think one of the reasons I was so fascinated by the landscape is because it exists on a timescale that's different from people. And so for that reason, it becomes very alien. So there's times when it seems that the weather or the world mirrors how you feel. And there's times when it feels like you're in conflict. But that, I think, is more an observation on how mercurial we are as people compared to something as infinite and everlasting as a stone. And we shouldn't forget to mention the engine behind Ming Zhu's travels. Well, it's revenge for his crimes. Love seems to be the engine. Absolutely. Yeah. Ming is traveling across the American West to get revenge on a number of men who have separated him from his wife and abducted her and consigned him to labor on the railroad. And on the way, he meets many fascinating characters from the prophet, the circus, just these kind of fantastical powers that you set it up because I won't do it just. <laughs> yeah. So along the way, he links up with this magic show of performers who have actual magical powers. There's a woman who cannot be burned by fire. There's a little boy who is deaf mute, but he can speak telepathically into other people's minds. And along the way, he ends up having to protect this group and their travels. And I think in doing so, he learns a little bit more about himself and his own humanity. And one of the questions that I often get is how can something so fantastical exist in this genre of the Western, which is traditionally extremely historically based, extremely grounded in reality. And to that, I say, I don't think it has been ever so grounded in reality. I think precisely because of its function as myth maker and because of the stories that it tells. I mean, in the Western, you have people who get shot in the stomach and then they're riding a horse for 800 miles. You know, that isn't on the same level of realism as someone with superpowers. And I think moreover, the mechanism of introducing the fantastical into an otherwise realist literature is to re contextualize the boundaries of what we consider magical and what we consider to be ordinary. Because the question that magical realism poses to its reader is you're viewing a text that seems to view the absolutely remarkable as being mundane. And so what elements in your own life out there beyond the book are remarkable, which you have come to view as mundane? So on the note of recontextualization, The Thousand Crimes of Bing Tzu has been called a new take on the Old West, a subversion of very established set of tropes with their own inherent power structures. So what have you personally learned in enjoyed or found difficult or interesting about the art of subverting and reimagining these age-old stories? Yeah, that's a great question. There's fun things and there's difficult things about entering a genre and trying to make it do your own thing. The best part about genres is that they constitute this kind of set of readerly expectations for the pace of the action, the type of action, what kind of mood you're going to set. And so it ends up being this bouncing act between having to ring the bells of the genre enough that it's recognizably of that type, but also to take the room that you have elsewhere to try to bend it. So the genre is great for me as a writer because it comes pre-stocked with tropes and moods and attitudes 
attitudes. And so everything in the book becomes a choice of, do I want to do this in line with the traditional genre or do I want to take this and spin it in a different way? And so, for example, when it comes to writing action in the book, I'm all for the old school way of doing it, the old school Western style of describing action with the gunfights and the fighting. But maybe when it comes to describing people of color, I don't think I'm going to take the genres stance on this one. I'm going to try my own thing. But I think to answer it from like a kind of mechanical standpoint, it's easier for plot reasons to enter into genre and, and to subvert it. But it is more difficult because the genre also resists and pushes back. There are certain transformations that are going to be very difficult to enact within genre. And so you have to really decide, is that something that you want to pursue? And what other parts of that genre are going to deform? If you do change that this one thing, how is the rest of the genre going to flex and deform in response to that? Okay, so you're exploring these colorful new possibilities that new identities can introduce into the genre. I think Thousand Crimes of Ming Tzu is an act of increasing representation, which I feel like has become sort of a contentious word. In the U.S., I observe this growing awareness of representation of historically marginalized populations in fiction. Storytellers introducing these more diverse casts, but also on the other side, people are also questioning this kind of quote-unquote representation. Like there's the issue of throwing in characters for the sake of representation and superficial political correctness, etc. So as someone in the literary world in the U.S., what do you think of the direction that representation and diversity in fiction is going in right now? Yeah. And when I was growing up, it was all about representation. That was the thing that was being championed. You know, we need more people of color in books, movies across all media. And then I think what we saw was an extremely cynical and capitalistically minded, ruthless optimization of that, where someone said, oh, you want representation, then we'll just throw in tokens, token people of color into projects, and then we'll check that box. And I think that became so prevalent in so many pieces of media that that became what we thought of as representation. I think it's a salvageable concept because I mean, when I encountered books growing up, they were all with white people in them. Front to back, start to finish, it was just white characters. And so when I started writing stories of my own in school as a middle schooler, they, you know, it's a surprise, they had white people in them, right? And there was just white people talking about other white people. I went to public school in Queens. I knew very few white people. And so I think what representation does at its best is that it informs the boundaries of possibility, that by seeing yourself represented in media, you become able to imagine your own stories transpiring in media and being made available for everybody else to witness. And so I think the point of representation is not just if we do a checklist of this piece of media, can we find a person of color? But I think the idea of representation is more that we want to be expanding the realm of storytelling, expanding what's possible by telling these stories that are not normally told. And I think that as the core concept is definitely something that I think we're seeing more of, especially in the literary world. But of course, it's not without its growing pains. The literary, the publishing world is still overwhelmingly white. They're making efforts to address it, but it is still overwhelmingly white. And so as a result, it's difficult to begin this process from nothing, not even from nothing, but from a position that has always privileged white people over people of color. And so we have a lot of ground to make up. But I think we are moving in the right direction. We are seeing more stories by people of color. Certainly I got published and I like where we're heading. Yeah. And just threading that line as to knowing what level of familiarity your audience has. Are you educating the audience about someone who hasn't grown up as a Chinese American or around other Asian Americans? Or are you that cultural translator? And in terms of your research process, how much familiarity your audience has? Because, you know, that's hard because the white American <laughs> is just expected to be the neutral, the automatic, pervasive cultural norm. So I don't know what your affections are on that. Yeah, I think whiteness is the default when it comes to stories. A question that I get sometimes is like, why did you choose to make the character Asian? And that is a decision that I made. But 
you never hear that about folks that have white people. You know, why did you choose to make the main character white? And so there's a sense in which people of color have to not only account for, but also justify their mere existence and presence in situations. And so there are books that to me feel as though they are written for a white audience, specifically for some kind of, not even education, but almost exotic, you know, the way that a Chinese restaurant in kind of the Midwest We'll pick out the font that makes it look like the English letters are Chinese. There's a kind of performative Asianness, for instance, that we could put on. And when we do that, we acknowledge that we think most of our readers are going to be white and that we have to teach them. And we have some kind of responsibility to educate them about what being Asian is like. And I think that may have been true pre-internet. And I think it really has changed because now I think it's possible to write something and to have an expectation that if there is something that the reader is confused by or the reader wants to know more about, they are completely able to fill in the gaps themselves. And so I think it has become a little easier to write with a little more expectation of the reader. And I think the other thing is that the reader too has become more willing to enter into ambiguity, enter into realms that they don't really know, because I think the reader has also developed a bit of a more open mind. Whereas in the past, I think especially with Asian American fiction, and stories from you know the 60s and 70s when the identity of Asian American was still in flux and, and indeed being invented. I think there was a sense that you had to reach out to not even an unconvinced, but perhaps even adversarial reader and convince them that not only are we people, but we have a culture that's worth exploring. I think now you can expect the reader to be a little less adversarial, a little more willing to join with you. And I think that is in large part a reason for the shift in tone. So this increase in representation, what I'm hearing from you is it's challenging readers to rethink what it means to be American. And so in the interview with the New York Times, you said you wanted to write a character who was unarguably American. For you, what does it mean to be unarguably American today? For me, it really is, you're buying into this kind of dream, right? If you strip away all of the historic and everything that we know that was bad about that time, there's this sense that the real America is this country that was formed out of a set of ideals in a way that historically at the time was quite rare. Like, are we an ethno-nationalist state? I think in practice, like we do end up being a state of white Protestants, but that's not in the constitution. Like in the constitution, we have this kind of set of attitudes and beliefs about what constitutes a person. And and of course, that is then litigated and fought over and hard won over the next 250 odd years. But I think that is the dream being American is that our culture is defined by how we greet the world and this projection of our ideals. And I think at our best as a country, that's what we represent. We represent people who are accepting of others and who integrate. Despite all of our differences, we are in this giant country and we're all linked together by an agreement that we're all subject to rule of law, by an agreement to democracy, by an agreement in the rights of man. But that's the ideal, right? And in practice, it really does kind of fall apart. But I think it's worth preserving and it's worth striving towards. And I think it's easy to be very cynical about the nation and the direction that it's heading in. And there are certainly times when it is difficult for me to read the news. And I don't entirely sometimes. But I think it is worth being optimistic because in the end, that's what drives change. And it's pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. Where, you know, it, it's okay to be downtrodden by knowing exactly the full scope of everything that needs fixing, but it is also necessary to preserve a kind of attitude towards the future where you think that things can improve and things can change. So it's really interesting, I think, that you say that ideals persist, even though reality sometimes falls apart and rebuilds themselves, that we should face the future with a sense of optimism and the ideals we started out with and not be cynical about how we came up with them and whether they should remain unchanging through time. Yeah, I think it's easy to be cynical and I think it's hard to be optimistic. And I think the hard thing is worth doing. I think that pessimism is right there as a response and it's really easy to get to. But pessimism often, I think, leads to inaction. 
end. If everyone's pessimistic, then we will end up bringing about the future that we fear the most. And so it is understandable and easy to be dejected. But I think that we have to do the difficult thing, which is to find a way to preserve our hope and still work toward a future, no matter how remote that future seems. And for instance, something like climate change and this anthropogenic mass extinction that we're seeing going on and we're losing enormous fractions of our biodiversity with every passing year, that's bleak. And it does feel like the end of the world is upon us and we're entering into an unsurvivable planet. And it's okay to know that and to think that and to still strive for something because I think at its extremes, hope becomes insane. And you have to do something to fight it because otherwise we are going into the apocalypse. There, I think there's no question. And in order to preserve hope against that possibility, I think that's difficult. And so that's what I stress. To do. Indeed, I do love the ecological message. I mean, just by walking in those footsteps, you makes us reflect on how much the land has changed and how much we have really changed it and damaged it. I mean, hopefully not irreversibly, but it's been quite extreme. And we should also say that Ming Su, who is also, if you could go into it, he's called John, in terms of who he loves and who he is and who he is raised by. And just tell us a little about the anti-miscegenation laws, you know, when love itself was a crime. Yeah, it really is linked to a set of fears and preoccupations that begin popping up in America around that time. You have the first influx of Asian immigrants into the United States around the 1850s. And in that year, they pass a law that levies a specifically higher tax on foreign miners. And so if you're a Chinese miner, you have to pay a higher tax than if you're a white miner. And like a year later, the Chinese immigrant population is like below 10,000, certainly not above 6,000 or so. And they actually raise the tax again. Right. And you see this development of an outsized fear and a disproportionate response to alterity in America that I think is very old. And I think you can trace it back to the founding of the country itself. And it certainly persists to this day. But you have this kind of legal and juridical framework that is rising up to isolate and stymie the Chinese immigrant in America in the 1850s and 60s. And so the anti-miscegenation laws, like a white woman cannot marry anybody else except a white man. Those laws appear, but they're not alone. They're accompanied by laws that tax Chinese people at a higher rate. They're accompanied by laws that prohibit Chinese students from going to the same public schools as white people. They're laws that prohibit Chinese people from giving evidence in court against or on behalf of a white man. So if a white person killed another person and you were the only witness and you were an Asian person, you would not be able to go to court. Your testimony would not stand. And at the same time that all this kind of juridical disenfranchisement is happening, the demand for Chinese labor is also increasing exponentially. The railroad is getting started. And so what the country is creating is this class of subjugated rightsless workers who have nothing to do and no protections except to work. And when they do work, it's for much less and it's for much longer. And if they do get injured or something happens to them, they have no recourse. And I think it's a pattern that you see often in America where juridically and socially you create this class of people that can just be ruthlessly exploited for no consequence. And I think that's something that we see happening in the 1850s. And of course, it culminates with the Chinese Exclusion Act when the United States says we will not be accepting any more immigrants from Asia. And that lasts pretty much until the 1960s. It lasts almost 100 years. And it's just a reflection of this modality of how the country has traditionally treated immigrants, but also this class of workers that has been perpetually created and maintained by these different modes. Indeed. I think there's been a long-standing fear that continues to this day. It was for different reasons, but I recall my grandfather could not get employed as an engineer until he had to write to his senator to say, I have more qualifications and I speak six languages. So I don't even know how he found his voice. 
but we just had to do more to get to the same level and not complain. And I'm really glad that this wave of Asian Americans finding their voice and claiming their space on the stage, as well as behind the scenes where we always have been. We just had a conversation at Jeffrey Sachs. We're just discussing the issue of China investing in its people and in other countries as well. And they're also having peacemaking missions to the Middle East. Yeah, I think all these actions are informed by history, right? Every nation, every group of people is looking at their history and then conducting actions in the present that are informed by that history. Yeah, a lot of China's nation building activities today are informed by a history of present that goes back to the great humiliation by the Western powers and the opium wars. Right. And a lot of American activities in the nation today are informed by our position and where we began and this long arc of history where we've become a military power and now we wish to preserve this kind of monopolar world hegemony. So I think it is a fool's error to analyze the actions of the present as being solely of the present. The past is always informing and structuring the present. And so I think for that reason, it's so useful to go back into the past and to excavate these stories because then we'll have a better idea of why and where we're making these decisions in the present. Indeed. You know, with Ming-Su, he has a special relationship with animals. That is true. And I'll cite Northrop Frye here, who says that what the author says about their work has peculiar interests because they wrote it, but not peculiar authority. So if I say something and it doesn't jive with your interpretation, disregard me. Personally, animal rights is a really interesting subject for me. I have pets myself, and they are not quite human, but human enough. And we have the tendency to anthropomorphize animals, often to our detriment. We'll often anthropomorphize animals that can eat us and sometimes do. And I think part of that is this kind of feeling that like, oh, the animals are closer to nature in some way, or that humans have become separated from nature. And so there's a conduit through animals. And I think one thing that I've always really felt is that the divide between human and animal is really constructed by humans for the purpose of maintaining our own sanity. Because when we do these experiments, when we say like, oh, can dogs have object permanence? Like, yeah, they do. And so we develop all of these higher order tests because we're trying to segregate this realm of rationality, which comes out of this enlightenment idea that the humans are the only rational creature and humans are the measure of man. And the instability and discomfort that we have with animals, I think, comes from that feeling of when you really connect with an animal, you begin to doubt how much of a human you are because you can see across that divide. And for Ming, interactions with animals is my way as a writer of putting him more closely in touch with the landscape and with nature and saying that he isn't just passing through these lands, but he's actually of them. And being able to have these interactions with animals, these almost mystical interactions, I think, does that kind of work of situating him not only within the landscape, but as a part of it, as participating in it as he traveling. I was curious about the role of China as a country and as a culture in your work, how it makes its way into the thousand crimes of Ming Tzu. Because on the one hand, I see this sort of alienation from a homeland, the Chinese part of the Chinese American, but also there's the American part of the Chinese American, like the US is the home for many Chinese Americans. And so it's almost like having divorced parents, having two homes. <laughs> I was wondering how the sense of dual homelands or just China as a country separate from the US and its culture makes its way into your work. Yeah. So I was born in Beijing and emigrated to the U.S. with my family when I was four. And I was visiting my relatives in China quite often until COVID. But it has always been the land of a 14-hour airplane ride, and then I can't read anything. And so I've had a kind of interesting, but I think also quite common experience with China as a Chinese American, which is this kind of far off land with which I'm associated, for which I have to account, but it feels at times very distant from me. But on the other hand, in America, I'm Chinese American. In China, I'm just an American. 
I'm too America for China and too Chinese for America. And so there is this kind of invisible middle that you have to create where you're able to coexist and kind of bridge those two identities. You know, there's been a lot of scholarship and academic back and forth in recent decades about something as small as a hyphen between Asian and American. Does that hyphen need to be there? Is that hyphen doing a lot of work that we don't want it to be doing? And I think we're all trying to work through this kind of mediation of how close are we to one place and how close are we to another place. And in the book specifically, China is almost an idea because Ming isn't born there. He doesn't speak the language. And so it's instead this thing that he has to continuously encounter for which he has no response or recourse, especially in that era when all the immigrants that are coming over are mostly from the Pearl River Delta. They're mostly very poor. China itself is a sovereign power, is in a really weakened state. So the relation of these two countries geopolitically has certainly changed over the last 150 years. But on the ground, in terms of individual experience, I think it is highly subjective and it's highly individualized. It depends on how well you speak Chinese, how often you visit, how many relatives you have there. But it's something that we're all trying to work out together step by step. And when we do come up with our own partial answers, we put them out in the form of stories and we build out this collective understanding together. Yeah, that sentence you said, two Chinese to be American, two American to be Chinese, that double sense of alienation. How do you navigate that gray space and treating it maybe as a friend instead of an enemy? I think I use writing as a way of thinking. And as a result, I write very slowly because I think very slowly. And I think that we're all trying to figure out stability for ourselves, not necessarily having an answer for every Asian American or every Chinese American, but just trying to come to an equilibrium for myself. I would like to stop oscillating between the two. And I would like to reach some place where I can hold the two together. And I think with each new project, with each new writing thing that I take on, I think I get a little closer. I have no illusions as to being able to get an answer soon or ever. Because I think the equilibrium point does shift and you know there's external pressures as well. I think writing is a space of play. Storytelling is a space of play. It's almost like the mechanism of dreams in the story where you have a space where there are no consequences, but there are. Right? So you have this duality where you can lose the game. You can play badly. And then when you're done, you return to the real world. But the fact that the game has happened, the fact that the play has happened is still there. And so that might have consequences beyond the fact that it has no consequence, which is very like Zen Cohen about it. But I think it is this null space where you get to construct worlds and see how they work and then step back from it. And I think that is the joy of fiction and the joy of writing. You know, what little there is for me, but the joy of writing as such is being able to build and exit and return. I have a stark impression of the time a friend and I had a conversation about reimagining nonfiction as a genre. So not only considering what it might mean for nonfiction to verge upon fiction, but also for nonfiction to converge with other artistic genres and media. What does it mean for poetry to be nonfiction, for example? Or even, what does it mean for architecture to be nonfiction? Part of creativity itself, I think, is re-envisioning boundaries of craft that popular imagination previously took for granted. Tomlin's novel is a work of reimagination of how the same fictional landscape and its genre-specific tropes and assumptions can be challenged when experienced by a different kind of body than the one traditionally situated in a Western tale. It questions the established associations between a certain racial identity and the kinds of stories that we think can and should be told about it. I find it fascinating and exciting that these conversations of reimagination and questioning, which I've increasingly observed among artists around me, are not only centered around elements of craft, but also the terms we've inherited in speaking of art and writing themselves. The word muse, for example, such as when we call someone in an artist's life their muse. What historical gender hierarchies and assumptions does that label carry? How might it treat the often female muse as a luminous object which provokes others to speak, but is herself relegated to silence? What other possibilities can the term muse become? 
I think reimagination does not only entail undermining and suppressing past assumptions about how society functions and dismissing paradigms that don't fit current moral margins. Reimagination, on and off the page, can aim at curiosity. It can be a space not just for pointing out what has been objectified, fetishized, othered, etc., but also for revealing what colorful array of potentialities these things or people can become. And as Tom points out, this is bodily work too. As someone who often finds herself scraping moments from her own life as a sort of compost heap for her writing, it strikes me with increasing vividness that we should not only write about environments, but also to let them write themselves in us, to bring ourselves to the environments and corners of societies we're trying to reimagine, and to observe how we experience them. Because writing, I think, is not an act consumed by control. It's also to let our so-called object of inspiration shock and enrich the materialities of our bodies right back. So in this way, the re-envisioning of genres and tropes, and of societal structures, doesn't have to try to antagonize or dismiss the past, we can also use it in an exploration of future possibilities in our own identities, which are all products of tradition in one way or another. Reimagination can be hopeful, and I agree with Tom in that sometimes it has to be hopeful. And now, back to the interview. It's so true. This ability to embody, to live many lives without those consequences. And hopefully we don't all have the secret fantasy to commit a thousand crimes. <laughs> we can understand where that comes from and we can work through those conflicts in an artistic and aesthetically fulfilling way, which is so important to go on those journeys without having to make the mistakes so we can find the right path. On this question of identity, you have a character called the prophet who's blind, can see into the future, but can't remember the past. And that does seem linked to, you know, what we go through in our process of assimilation and exile. Yeah. The prophet is this old blind man that Ming has to protect over the course of the story. And sometimes I get asked, do you think of yourself as Ming? And my answer is always, I actually think of myself as the prophet, as this kind of ancient man who can't remember anything about the past. But I think Mechanically, The Prophet was a great character for me to write because it provided a foil for Ming and he served as kind of function of foresight. So it's possible to bring in things from the future to access this long story of the past and of geology through The Prophet and being able to route that through this kind of mystical sense, this mystical feeling of this character who is able to access this time, which made it a lot easier for me to put the fascinations I had with geology and geological time in the book without being out of place. This paleontologist, Jack Horner, who has inspiration for like Jurassic Park, told me when he sees rock formation, he actually sees when it mm -hmm. was a river and he feels completely at home in the past. So that's also what fiction can do. We can see through the many layers of what we are. Yeah. Yeah. I always found that to walk through the world with a naturalist or someone who knows every name of everything and can describe the processes, I've always found that remarkable. To walk through a world that is known, I think, is a different level of connection with time. On the question of writing as a space of play, I write a bit of fiction, but also a bit of poetry. And I was wondering if you have experience playing with other genres and what that experience has been like for you versus fiction. Yeah, I'm also working on a dissertation, so I am working in a critical analytical mode as well. I like writing anything in general. I teach this composition class, so I told my students, writing is not hard, it's just like speaking, but you have the chance to get it perfect. That's liberating, and that makes you love writing. And then afterwards, uh, I had a student come up to me and she said, that's the most stressful thing anyone's ever told me, <laughs> that writing is when you can get it perfect. Because now I don't want to write anything. <laughs> so I think there's different effects on different people. I like writing and I like working in other modes, like nonfiction and critical, because it feels to me like left hand, right hand. 
you know, so sometimes I'll work on something for my dissertation and I'll think, oh, that's a little too out there. I'm going to try to bring that back, change it up, and then maybe put it in the fiction and vice versa. And it does feel like both are practicing the, the art of writing, which is the art of getting your thoughts down on paper, having it look right. I think with writing in any mode or any genre, you're always working towards a platonic ideal of a thought or a movement that you have in your head. And reference to that ideal in our heads is how we decide on revisions where we go, that is better. And I think it's asymptotic. I think we'll never get there. But that's why we have editors, because at some point someone has to say, you know, like, you're done. <laughs> but I think the joy of writing is that kind of iterative improvement. I think that is common across modes and genres. And so as you think about the future and education, the importance of the arts, what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? That's a great question. I mean, I think I would like them to preserve everything. <laughs> I think so much of historical work is going back and trying to piece together the things that have not been preserved. And so even with biodiversity and planet, I think we should try to have less impact on our surroundings and more impact on each other. There's less and less investment in the humanities in some places, and that really saddens me. I think art is important because it's something that we do as humans that has no purpose beyond how it makes us feel. And something like that is valuable because it is hard and because it is directed at other people. The making of art, the consumption of art, I think, is what makes us human. As opposed to animals, right? If we are going to draw that line, I think that's where it is. And I think the purpose of art is to preserve the feeling of being alive and to communicate that to others. Oh, it's definitely, it's the one thing that we do pass on. I think animals are more comfortable with their impermanence and yeah. part of nature. We always want to separate ourselves. But that's the beauty, too, of the arts. So thank you, Tom Lin, for inviting us into your imaginative world and sharing your writing about memory, exile, bearing witness, love, homeland, revenge, and forgiveness. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you, Ian Henry, for having me. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Henny Zhang with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews produced on this episode was Henny Zhang. Digital media coordinator was Sam Myers. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, and podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.